This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina Young, and today we're talking about water on the Navajo Nation. We have with us a principal hydrologist in the Navajo Nation's Department of Water Resources. Yad a she crystal tuli cordova yenishia, twitch eat me nishlink, at nezahni bushes chin, hushk on hedzahak, edasha chait, or hakelini edasha nalle, besto klejindesh gij do twatlakai dent nasha. Hi, I'm Crystal Tuli Cordova, and I am of the Bitter Water clan, born for the Tango People clan. My maternal grandfather's clan is the Yakapruch Strangana line. And my paternal grandfather's clan is the water that flows together. I am a principal hydrologist in the Navajo Nation Department of Water Resources Water Management Branch, and I am happy to be here today. Thank you so much. We're very happy to have you. I wanted to start by just hearing about your background and kind of what got you interested in water and hydrology and and what led you down the path that you're on yeah thank you i live in a beautiful place i come from the navajo nation and many tourists come to this beautiful land to see the majestic geologic formations for me my connection to the land grew from my interaction as a young explorer and scientist, climbing the mesas in the homelands of where my grandparents were from, uh, Blue Gap, Arizona. And that's where my paternal grandfather and grandmother are from. And then my maternal side is from Tuatlagai, New Mexico. It was just very amazing to me to be able to see seashells in Northeastern Arizona. And that, just sparked my curiosity to learn more considering I knew that you can find seashells, you know, in California or on the East coast and being able to find them all over along beaches. And so that just sparked my curiosity. Although I didn't stay completely in water, I did go with a electrical engineering track for a while, but found that wasn't really where my passion was, that instead my passion was with geology and hydrology. You had this background and interest in water and hydrology, and then and then you took it to specifically applying your interests in, in water and hydrology on the Navajo Nation. Can you describe your path that got you to your, your current role? Definitely. Many people listening today may may be familiar or may not be familiar with the track of going on to a PhD and doing research, but there's opportunity there to be able to research things that interest you. Oftentimes, you know, people may be interested in topics that are related to places that they're from or something that they would like to know more about. For me, it was really about having a better understanding of the place that I come from, from the Four Corners region of the United States, and having an understanding of different parts of the water cycle and being able to quantify that information for the use of water managers within the Navajo Nation. We do have Indigenous knowledge. Our Indigenous knowledge is passed down 
through oral history and discussion. And for me, you know, my grandmother, both of them have told me that all water is connected. And, you know, with me going into the research that I went to was really looking at the thumbprint of water, looking at stable isotopes of water. Many people refer to water as H2O, but beyond that, you can be able to look at oxygen 17 and 18 and deuterium and be able to look at how water looks regionally throughout the world. For example, water in the Navajo Nation looks a lot different isotopically than water in Paris or water in Salt Lake City or even the Pacific Northwest or all the way down to Florida. Isotopically, water looks different throughout the world. And for me, it was about having this understanding of asking that question, yes, water is connected, but by using stable isotopes, can I be able to see this connection among all water sources, meaning the precipitation uh, that comes in the form of rain and snow and be able to have an opportunity to evaluate groundwater, springs, streams, both ephemeral, which run intermittently throughout the year and perennial, which run year round and have the opportunity to look at that connection with lakes as well. And so that's what my research really did. You know, you, you had these questions about water and, and what it looks like and how it's connected. Can you briefly or, or in whatever depth you want to go kind of describe the hydrology of the larger Navajo Nation and just talking about where does the water come from? So in addition to my research of looking at st- stable isotopes, I also did an evaluation of hydroclimatic regions in the Navajo Nation. And when you drive through the Navajo Nation, either from east to west or north to south or vice versa, what you can definitely see are changes in vegetation. Those changes in vegetation allow us to have an understanding to make hypotheses that there are most likely changes in precipitation that contribute to what vegetation may be available in different regions. For example, in the Cheska Mountains that are the mountain region that goes along north to south along the border of Arizona and New Mexico, you can see that there are aspens there. There's these trees that you see in higher elevation, blue spruces. And then you can go to southwestern region of the Navajo Nation, Loop, Arizona, which is near Flagstaff, Arizona. And in that painted desert region, you see that there's no trees, there's different type of vegetation, grasses, some shrubs, but not a lot of vegetation that uses a lot of water. And so that makes, you know, inferences for me as a scientist to be able to have an understanding of these different areas throughout the Navajo Nation, that there are different precipitation regions and that an average for the whole Navajo Nation is not suffice to be able to describe the precipitation variability throughout the Navajo Nation. And it's important to have that understanding because then you can better understand where your recharge sources are. It's always important to have sustainability in your system. And so having knowledge about 
where precipitation occurs, where there might be more opportunity for storage. For example, in the Cheska Mountain region, that gets more winter precipitation, and there are storage along the western side of the Chiska Mountains to be able to capture some of that water, including areas like wheat fields, Lake Salie, all the way down to many farms. Although the drought has had significant impacts, not only on man-made reservoirs, but also natural lakes. And so some of the water availability in those systems are not what we've historically seen in the past. I'm curious, you mentioned that in, uh, you know, one precipitation average for the Navajo Nation, you know, which is the size of, of West Virginia, is inadequate. And I'm wondering if that is unique to the Navajo Nation, that there's just one kind of like that's often thought about as just one precipitation average, or is that commonly how hydrology and precipitation is thought about over large areas? It's really about what available information is there. When there's not a lot of national weather stations in an area to make inferences that throughout these regions, I mean, especially because it's so rural, right? And when you think about these weather stations, what do they need? Electricity. And oftentimes infrastructure is desperately needed, not only for energy, but also for water. The Navajo Nation has around 30% of homes that don't have pipe water and a little over 30% don't have electricity. And so when you begin to think about ways that are automated to be able to collect this uh, hydrologic information, it's important to have an understanding about the infrastructure that exists. So for our precipitation network, the precipitation that I described that was quantified, it's based on precipitation network that is checked on monthly and manually, meaning we have people within the Department of Water Resources water management branch, water monitoring inventory group that goes to each of these 89 sites throughout the Navajo Nation to collect information about what that monthly change has been. This network was set up not to the extent that it is in the 1950s and 60s, but we've had decades of historical information. And that information, if you were to Google Prior to the paper that I wrote, Precipitation in the Navajo Nation, you wouldn't be able to readily see that information that was collected by the Navajo Nation tribal government. But now when you do Google precipitation variability in the Navajo Nation, there's quantification of that precipitation variability based on the network that has been set up by the Navajo Nation through the research that I conducted. I also know that some of your work has has dealt with issues of safe drinking water. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those issues um, within the Navajo Nation and how you and others are working to address them. In the Navajo Nation, as I mentioned, approximately 30% does not have running water. And we're in a pandemic right now. This is an unprecedented time. And it's a time in which we're encouraged to wash our hands frequently and clean surfaces more frequently as well. And when you're a water hauler, those become challenges. The Navajo Nation executive 
leadership, the president of the Navajo Nation, has been very proactive in its manner to be able to address the spread of COVID-19. And by doing so, had, had implemented uh, nightly curfews, weekend curfews, a good portion of the government was shut down during the height of the pandemic. And so when you're a water hauler and there are limited accessibility to safe drinking water points, that, that was a challenge for people an effort that we did in collaboration with the Indian Health Service was to be able to help construct as well as get information out about 58 new transitional water points. We have 110 Navajo communities and of those 110, 58, 59 of them didn't have watering points. So we provided a transitional water point In the Navajo Nation, there are over 521 mapped abandoned uranium mines, and associated with that, there are unregulated water sources, so like livestock wells that have elevated levels of uranium and arsenic, and it's important to have that understanding because, you know, when people have limited accessibility to water, you don't want people turning to unregulated water sources as their water supply, and so being able to provide a safe drinking water access, not only at these transitional points, but also the permanent water points as well that provide safe drinking water. There's opportunity to not only gain that access, but through this program called the Navajo Safe Water is to also get like a five gallon jerry can as well as have uh, disinfection tablets so that you can not only gain access to water, but you can store water safely as well by utilizing these disinfection tablets. And this was all funding that had been appropriated through the CARES Act funding, and it was done in collaboration with the Indian Health Service. You know, in in reading some of the work that you have done, you know, one of the things I've noted and and based on your research background, you know, is that you see and have expressed a need for funding water-related research within the Navajo Nation. And I'm wondering what types of research questions or or knowledge gaps are you interested in seeing filled related to hydrology in your area? So I mentioned that water development is a priority for the Navajo Nation. A similar priority, but not given funding as a high priority is water research within the Navajo Nation. But I am definitely appreciative of our relationship and partnership with academic institutions throughout the Four Corners region and beyond that help us be able to gain uh, understanding about our area. For example, everything from having a better understanding about water haulers and their behaviors of not only hauling water, but the mindset of where they get their sources from. When you have generations of a family that had previously before the Safe Drinking Water Act had receive water from different sources and their understanding is that, you know, we've drank this water for decades and we're perfectly fine. But then when you have an understanding, like this is what's in your water and it's better that you drink from a public water source, you know, more information is needed about that. Similarly, there's more information needed about brackish water and research associated with that. So a large 
portion of the Navajo Nation has brackish water. So this means elevated levels of total dissolved solids. There's need for technology and energy uh, to be able to evaluate nanofiltration best as reverse osmosis best. As far as your power source is wind, solar, diesel, or hooked up to the power grid better? Like what, what are the possibilities there? And then below the surface, having an understanding about what is recharging our groundwater supply? How does that recharge occur? You know, the geology below the surface is not a layered cake. And so from one side of the Navajo Nation to the other, we can't be able to have this firm understanding unless we do smaller regional studies in each area to gain a better understanding of what the recharge is like by being able to do some modeling, you know, what's the water availability there. But then even on the, the surface, when we begin to think about, you know, climate change impacts in these areas, further describing work that has been done with dune migration, having an evaluation of that, how has that frequency changed over time, as well as looking at the surface, you know, the vegetation perspective and really looking at native species versus non-native species, evaluating that. So for research, there's a lot of information that is needed. And I'm really appreciative of the opportunity because not only would we not have the funding resources to be able to do research within the Navajo Nation that has implications for, you know, what our water source is, but also we don't have the technical capacity and through these partnerships with academic institutions, it allows us to be able to build capacity and be able to gain more resources that we wouldn't otherwise have. The great part about this research as well is that Navajo people or people that are allies of Navajo people that are invested in this research, um, not only for the short term, but for the long term. I wanted to see if there was any topics or directions, things that you wanted to add in that are meaningful to you or that you think should be put out there. Yeah, I definitely think one topic of understanding, not only for the Navajo Nation, but also the Western states at large is drought. And the last week in September, we had a lot of precipitation. So it was like raining the whole day for multiple days. And sometimes that type of experience allows people to have understanding like we're no longer in drought because it rained for extended period of time. But the understanding that needs to be understood is that when you're in extended periods of drought that just a few precipitation events doesn't get us out of that drought. You would need extensive amount of precipitation to be able to help us recover from that drought over an extended period of time, definitely longer than the few days that we receive um, constant precipitation. And then in July, I visited the second largest reservoir in the Navajo Nation, and that was dry. And I know it'll take significant amount of precipitation to bring that system back up to running so that people in that area are able to use the water in that reservoir for farming practices that they have done for generations. 
Well, Crystal, I really want to thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us about these really important and interesting issues around water and the Navajo Nation and in, and in this region as a whole. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I really enjoyed our discussion today. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. This episode of Science Moab was sponsored by the STEM Action Grant from the Society for Science. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Newsletter by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.